The thing that's on my heart today is uh, some topics that I would like to talk about that have to do with why Christians lack power. Why do Christians lack power? I've been ministering for over 40 years, and this whole area of uh, an abundance of teaching over the years that have to do with the we can have authority, we can have power, we can um, do the miracles, we can do greater things. It, it has not developed the way it should have developed. At least that's my opinion. And so it, the whole thing was brought to my attention, I guess, in a staggering way. When I heard a man who from India who was a government official, spent some time in a government capacity here in Canada. And he, of course, was not a Christian. But when he went home, he made a statement about Christians here in Canada. He said, Christians are ordinary people that make extraordinary claims, but they live ordinary lives. And that really caused me to, I don't know if I lost sleep over it, but boy, it concerns me that we would be saying things that we're not doing. And so the question is, why do we lack power if the Bible's very clear that we shall receive power, as Jesus said in Acts chapter 1? And you see the question has to be answered if we're going to be faithful to the word of God. He said we shall receive, we will do miracles, we'll do even greater, and yet in a very limited way, I see it happening. So please bear with me in the next number of sermons that I do that have to do with different areas of the power and the lack thereof. There's a book that is very prominent as far as I'm concerned about this. I don't know if it was written by a Christian or not. He may be, he may not be. His name was Ramsey McMullen. Now he's a professor, he was at least, at Yale University and his expertise is in the whole area of early Roman history. And in his study of early Roman history, he found some things that this book records. He says this in the, in the preface to his book, that for a nation like Rome, which covered almost all of the known earth at that time, for a nation that was totally pagan at the time of Christ, within 400 years, that nation had been converted to Christianity. And Ramsey McMillan says, that's never happened before nor since. So it's not just news that a nation turned from paganism to Christianity. 
it should be recorded as history. And so being a history person himself in the study of the early Roman Empire, and by the way, Lippocides says he's the foremost authority on early Roman history. That's probably why he was lecturing at Yale. But he says in that book, and it's entitled, by the way, Christianizing the Roman Empire, A.D. 100 to 400. So he's covering 300 years of what he found in different Roman documents and archaeology digs and all the areas of his searching to understand the Roman Empire at that time better. He kept coming across stories of people, he calls them little prophets, they were Christians who traveled around through those 300 years after the apostles, after Jesus, traveled around converting whole towns, villages, and maybe even cities for Jesus simply by doing the miracles, healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out demons, and preaching the gospel. And so that book, it's worth a read, especially if you have been raised in a Christian atmosphere where you were taught that the miracles all started, all stopped, pardon me, at a certain time in history. It's important what he found. He's not trying to prove anybody right or wrong. He's simply saying, this is what I've found in the writings of the early Roman history. So when I read that book, it amazes me. When Jesus said, we shall do greater, we should be serious about that. And you see, I consider that the problem is not in heaven, but rather that the problem is down here. The problem is with me. It's with us. It's with the church. And so I'm going to do a number of different teachings under this series of Why Do Christians Lack Power, tonight I want to talk on what the scepter is. And you see, in order to just kind of set a little platform here, it says the seven sons of Sceva in Acts 19, they were trying to cast a demon out of a man. Seven guys trying to cast a demon out of one guy, and the man with the demon beat up on those guys, ripped their clothes off, and sent them naked, running. So the question is, why couldn't they? were using the name of Jesus. Why couldn't they cast the demon out of that man? But then on the other hand, we see Paul speaking to a slave girl and casting a demon out just like that. And yet back in Acts, pardon me, Luke chapter 940, it tells us that the disciples... They brought a young, a man brought a young boy to him who was having, it looks like he might have been having epileptic seizures. Doesn't say exactly that. The disciples couldn't cast it out. Why couldn't they, but Paul later could? Another question is why the disciples, when Jesus sent them out with authority, they could cast out demons? But at this particular case in Luke 9, they had not received that authority, so therefore they couldn't cast a demon out of that boy. 
that gives us a clue as to what's going on. So the scepter, let me explain a wee bit. It was a long shafted thing that kings generally had or people in authority had. The records in the Bible are mostly about kings who had it. The main one would be in Esther, where Esther had to approach the king in three times in chapter 4, then in chapter 5, and in chapter 8. She knew that if the king didn't want to see her, the scepter could be moved in such a way that she could be put to death because he felt he was so important that anybody that didn't have permission would be annihilated. But he, she was blessed because she was under the hand of God doing what she needed to do to save her people. Read the book of Esther if you want the whole story. Now, the scepter is simply a shaft or a rod, but in the Bible, it's a symbol of authority. As the king in Esther, it was his authority. What he did with that scepter determined what the uh, soldiers would do at that time. And so the use of the scepter originated in the idea that the ruler was like a shepherd of the people. That would be a good shepherd, a good man uh, using his scepter in the right way. That's where it originated as far as we know. The, the Webster says that the word authority means legal power. Now power means ability to do something. But I'm going to show you that power without authority just doesn't always work and can be dangerous. So let's find out, if, if the Bible talks about a scepter, it must be symbolic of something. And so it is of righteousness. In Hebrews 1.8, it says, this, But about the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. So he's saying that when you walk in righteousness, that gives you the authority for your kingdom. And so God is looking for authority in his people in order to do the work that Jesus has said we will do. Now that verse in Hebrews 1 verse 8 is definitely talking about Jesus. And so it says, Jesus, when you walk in righteousness, you will have authority. Psalm 45 verse 6 is where that verse comes from. The writer of the Hebrews quotes it almost perfectly. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. All right, so there's prophetic words about Jesus and this scepter. One is from Numbers 24, 17. And this is where Balaam was called by Barak the king to come and curse Israel as they approached this territory. They were still in the wilderness, but they were coming towards this territory. He, he, he continually blessed them. If you read Numbers uh, 14 and 20, or 23 and 24, continually blessed them. The third time um, the king wanted them to curse them, he blessed them again. And this was his blessing over the children of Israel. He says, I see him, but not now. Now, we know now he was talking about Jesus who would come out of Israel. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob, 
a scepter will rise out of Israel. And so he's prophesying that out of Israel will be someone with great authority. Then in Psalms 110, verse 2, again, the psalmist is speaking about Jesus, but being he's quoting God here under the power of the Spirit. It says, the Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. And he goes on in 110 of Psalms to explain some things which we will leave for now. But I want to pick out of that that he's, he's, he's telling us that Jesus will come with authority, the scepter. It'll come from Zion. Now, Zion is sometimes referred to as Israel, sometimes Judah, sometimes Jerusalem, but it basically means the presence of the Lord. So when Zion is referred to as Jerusalem, he's talking about the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem and so on. And so the prophecy that the Lord was giving through different prophets and is fulfilled in Matthew 28, 18, a very common verse here um, that we're going to read. I'm going to read 18 right through to the end of 20. It says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, he taught to the disciples, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So first of all, in, in verse 18, where it says, uh, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. You see, when Jesus walked in righteousness, he opened the door so God could give him the authority that, were, that is, is um, the meaning of the word scepter in this case. And so he walked in righteousness so that he could get that. And then it says in verse 19, therefore go. So he's saying to the, the apostles that were with, you go into all the world and preach the gospel. He said, we need God's authority to go. And he says in verse 18, that authority has been given to me because of that. Now you can go. And we also need to set an example of obedience in verse 20 teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So we need to set an example of obedience ourselves in order for the disciple to learn from us. The disciples will learn from you. If you're disobedient, they'll learn from you if you are obedient. That's what a disciple is. Someone that doesn't learn from you, even though you're talking to them, is not a disciple. The disciple is someone who hears and does it. Now, the authority to do miracles came with authority that Jesus gave his disciples. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, he called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. It doesn't say he gave them a power. He said he gave them authority. The authority to do miracles came with the authority Jesus gave them. Power without authority can be dangerous. People exercising the power of the Holy Spirit 
without that, uh, that righteousness in their life, I believe they're in vain because the power without authority might do things. I have no, I have no stories one way or the other. I just know I'm not going to try them. We need to live in righteousness in order for that authority to be ours. So how do we live in righteousness? First of all, it needs to start with repentance. John the Baptist taught repentance. Jesus taught repentance. Peter did in the day of Pentecost. Paul did in the book of Acts. The book of Revelation does. He's calling to the church to repent. He's not calling to a bunch of heathen. He's calling for the church five of the seven times he, that John spoke to the churches. Five of them had to repent. If you've been taught that Christians want to repent, it's over, not according to the book of Revelation. <laughs> Begins with the repentance. I've done a teaching. It's called True and False Repentance. Look for it on Gospel TV in the archives. You'll find it in there under my name. Psalm 139. In the view of, Tim, of all the repentance we need to do, we need to say, Lord, Search me, O Lord. Psalm 15. O Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? That's the question. Who may live on your holy hill? That's the next question. The answer is, he whose walk is blameless and who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from his heart. My question is, if we're not walking in obedience to the Lord, if we're not obeying him, why would God trust us with his authority? If I was a manager and the people that worked under me were disobedient, I wouldn't give them authority. I would take it from them. Righteousness requires public confession. Acts 19, the church says they openly confess their sins. What were they doing? They're humbling themselves. Acts 19 is where I just quoted. We need to live the first and the second commandment. I just did a teaching on my yoke is easy. It is not hard to follow Jesus. Look for my yoke is easy in the archives. It's not that hard. The more you love Jesus, the easier it is to obey him. Now I'd like to just comment on what righteousness might look like. From Isaiah 32, 17, it says, The fruit of righteousness will be peace. The effect of righteousness will be quietness and confidence forever. If people walk into your home, what do they sense in your home? What do they sense when they're talking to you as a person? Is there peace there? Is there a quietness in your spirit and a confidence that you know who you are in Christ, know where you're going? Is there a confidence? Is there a quietness? Is there a peace? If there isn't, go spend time with the Lord and say, search me, O Lord. Search my heart. Search everything in me. I want to walk in a place of righteousness. In Matthew 8, verse 5, the centurion he came to Jesus for healing for a servant. And when Jesus said, yes, I'll come, he said, 
You don't have to come. Just say the word. I'm a man under authority. I say the word. My man have to do what I say. You say the word, it'll happen. Jesus commented on his faith being greater than all of Israel because he recognized authority. He recognized righteousness in a man. And then in Matthew 21, when Jesus cleared the temple, the Pharisees were angry, of course. He'd upset the money changers' tables. He said, selling doves and all that, you've made my house a house of thieves instead of a house of prayer. And the authority came and said, who gave you that authority? Where do you get that authority? They recognized it in him. It wasn't because they turned over the tables that they recognized authority. They knew authority when they saw it in a man. Sometimes this authority has to do with us as a whole church. Many times, I'm convinced as the whole church repents, the whole church cries out to God to search its heart. The church across our nation would start to change in its look. It would start to look like authority. It would start to look like God has been among us. Here's why in, in 1 Samuel 14, Jonathan, with his armor bearer, defeated a whole group of Philistines because Israel was walking with the Lord. He had the authority to deal with that whole, whole segment of the Philistines. But later on in 1 Samuel 31, when Israel was not serving the Lord, sin had come in. Saul had led them the wrong way in disobedience and disrespect for the Lord. And in that time of disobedience, instead of Jonathan, who again is at war with the Philistines with his father and his brothers, instead of winning because the scepter had been removed from Israel, the authority had been taken from Israel, Jonathan was killed, his two brothers were killed, and Saul was killed. The scepter had been removed from the nation. The scepter has been removed from the church, and we are not seeing the victories, the healings, the rising of the dead that we should be seeing. I just want to finish with a quote. A man named Derek Prince used to do um, a two-minute meditation on radio. Please let me read it if you don't mind. It's from Psalm 125, verse 3. The scepter of wickedness will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous. So here's his comments. Did you realize that wickedness yields the scepter? Yes, it is true. There is authority in the kingdom of Satan. The scripture tells us in Colossians 1, 12 to 13, that we have been delivered from the authority of the dominion of darkness and translated into the kingdom of the Son of God's love. There are two kingdoms set in sharp, stark contrast. 
the kingdom of the authority of darkness and the kingdom of the Son of God's love, which is a kingdom of light and of love. Each kingdom has authority, but the authority of the kingdom of God is superior to all other authority in the universe. God's kingdom, the scripture says, rules over all. It is established forever. It is unshakable. And when we are part of God's kingdom, then God permits us on his behalf to yield the scepter of righteousness, the scepter which has upon it the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he yield that, as we wield that scepter, we break back, cast down, and break the scepter of wickedness, destroying the kingdom of Satan. We move back into the area which God has allotted for us. So there is a promise for God's people to, be, to regain their inheritance in Christ. The scepter of wickedness shall not remain over the land allotted to the righteous, I read from Psalm 125. For you and me, there is a land allotted to us through our righteousness in Christ. We need to take that scepter boldly and beat down the scepter of wickedness and enter into our allotted inheritance. That's a quote from Dark Prince. In the name of Jesus, Father, give us wisdom. Amen. site at jwmi.ca to find out about more information of our ministry.